Thank you very much for that spontaneous round of applause. Um, uh, hello and welcome to Liars League NYC. Um, for those of you who haven't been, um, Liars League is a regular live short fiction reading event uh, featuring professionally trained actors reading new fiction by emerging and well-established writers. Selected stories are published on our website at liarsleagueNYC.com, uh, performed live here at KGB. Uh, and uploaded to uh, as a free podcast via the iTunes Store and on Stitcher Radio. Uh, each of our events is themed. Tonight's theme is freedom and restraint. Uh, and so we're going to have two stories, followed by an intermission, uh, and then the final two stories after that, as well as sort of our slightly shambolic literary trivia quiz uh, at the intermission. With exciting prizes, we have uh, Jonathan Franson's Freedom. Yeah, get it? Uh, and then three other disconnected ones. So um, <laughs> that, was, that was the only one that I was going to build in with the theme. Um, so uh, just in terms of, you can find out more about us at uh, liarsleagueNYC.com, and I'll tell you a bit more about uh, what we're up to and our deadlines and stuff like that uh, later on. Uh, but for the time being, if you could just make sure your phones are turned to silent, that would be great. We heartily encourage uh, Facebooking and Twittering and Instagramming and Tindering or whatever else you want to do uh, is great uh, as long as it's done relatively quietly. Um, so if you could turn off or make sure your phones are on silent. Um, there is an email sign-up sheet which I'm going to send around right now. I'll pass that to Aaron first. There you go. Thank you. And uh, if you want to sign up, your uh, give us your name and email address. That would be great. We'll send you a very occasional sort of monthly update again about what we're up to deadlines, events, etc., and so on and so forth. And uh, Dan and Seiji are looking after you behind the bar. Round of applause for Dan and Seiji. <laughs> Tip them well, as they say. And, uh, and if you're sitting comfortably, we will begin in that case. Um, so our first story of the evening is Your Instagram by Kate Scarpetta. Do we have Kate with us? Here. Oh, right in front of us. Round of applause to Kate. Hiding in plain sight there. So we love your Instagram, uh, not just because we've all been, as you'll see, online stalkers, I think, at one point or another in our lives, uh, but because of a lot of the little details that you'll see emerging in the story, uh, the clothes, the poses, the filters uh, that, that uh, form part of the fabric of this piece, um, all of which can we think to kind of create a perfect picture of a very modern social dilemma. Um, once upon a time, we did not have access to each other's lives the way we do today, and the freedom that we allow uh, can, as you'll see, have a cost. Uh, so Kate Scarpetta grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania and spent her youth playing sports and climbing trees. Her young adulthood was spent chasing a golf ball around the world as a professional athlete. Now she works in tech and moonlights as a comic and aspiring TV writer. Her pilot, Under Par, is about the circuit beneath the ladies' professional golf tour. Kate attended Princeton University, where she studied under Joyce Carol Oates and Edmund White. Her work has been featured in the Brooklyn Review, Split Lip, Word Riot, Bull, and 14 Hills, amongst others. And you can find out more about her at katescarpetta.com. And Kate's piece will be read by Tim Farley. Tim Farley is an actor, artist, writer, dad, and native New Yorker. He's appeared professionally in theater, film, and television. Some favorite stage roles include the title role in Tartuffe, Macduff, Macduff even in Macbeth, 
Full staff in The Merry Wives of Windsor and Andy Tracy in Brian Friel's Lovers. Tim has studied improv at UCB and elsewhere and has been a member of several groups. His most re recent TV appearance was on Law and Order SVU in 2018. So without further ado, I give you your Instagram by Kate Scarpetta. Your Instagram by Kate Scarpetta. When is it all right to look? It's my iPhone that I'm staring at. You obviously want someone to see these, but how do I know if I'm that someone? I, I guess if I don't know you that well, then I shouldn't be looking at pictures of you and your friends at a party, or you and your family at Disney World, or you and someone, an ex-girlfriend, a current girlfriend. Kissing against some wall in Paris, trying to look cinematic. If I am not the intended viewer, and I consent that in most cases I am not, what is wrong with just looking? It, it feels wrong, because I can't come up with a good reason for doing it. I can, however, theorize terrible possibilities about my condition and personality. I am depressed, I am an escapist, I have low self-esteem. Agoraphobic, pervert, creep, weird, jealous, pathetic. What else can be said? I'm just looking at you. I see you at the gym sometimes. I go on Tuesdays now, too. I debate waving. Do you even know my name? I know your middle initial. Because you put it in your profile. It's A flanked by underscores. But what's it stand for? Anthony, Adam, Aaron, Alexander. It kills me not to know. You're proud of your body. <laughs> you should be. It gets an A in my book. The pictures of you on the beach in Cancun with a sepia filter over spring break looked like an old Abercrombie and Fitch ad campaign. The one of you buried in the sand was funny. Who did that to you? You're so easygoing and cool to let your friends do that to you. Last Tuesday, I saw you wearing your iHeart Mexico frat tank. I know that all of your friends have one too. As a joke, you all bought them in the airport and took a picture wearing them while giving the camera the thumbs up. <laughs> Everyone except you was sunburned. Even your ex-girlfriend, she's probably an ex because you don't follow her anymore. I checked. I get that. I totally get that. I still haven't said hi to you. That hi would have been my way of saying, I'm sorry. Her loss, you can do better. I'm glad the sun got to her. She deserved to get burned beyond the, beyond the help of the Amaro filter. You really can do better. But instead, you're doing the guy thing and getting hammered a lot. You lost your cell phone last weekend. I was invited to the Need Digits event on your Facebook that's linked to your account. That event must have sent to all of your friends, real and fake. I didn't give you my number, but now I have yours. I put you on my contact list. I included your middle initial. It burns me so hard not knowing. 
There's no reason to have your number, but I do. It's silly, it's stupid, but just in case you care, I used your last profi profile picture, and your ringtone is Maraca. <laughs> not sure why I chose that one. Perhaps it's the Mexico thing. I wish I had been there with you. I really don't like these drunken club stories. It's not a good look for you. You take them down quickly. Are you afraid your boss at the Smith Agency will fire you if he or she sees you disheveled, clutching at bar babies with a drunk face on? The fact that you take them down so quickly strengthens my hope that this is just a phase with you. Did you really like her that much? I like the older photos of you. You've been other places before Mexico and before her. Seeing these makes me want you. They always have. They make me want to be like you, to be your natural fit. They make me want to go out, buy an expensive camera, one with a manual optic zoom, and take a picture of myself using the reflection of some famous modern piece of artwork, like the Bean in Chicago. I've never been to Chicago, but I know you have. <laughs> Your sister goes to school at Northwestern. Her follow request is still pending with me. I hope she accepts, buying that we follow each other. I want to see if she posted more from last Christmas. Was that when you got your camera? I want one so badly. I want to shoot landscapes of New Zealand where you spent a semester of junior year and put clever captions underneath, like the land of Mordor, <laughs> hashtag Frodo Baggins, hashtag my precious. <laughs> if I was clever and well-traveled, you look at my pictures too. Would you be in, in them with me, holding and kissing me? Loving me for all of our followers to see. <sighs> Staring at my phone, I sit on my blue futon and wonder how you do it. All of these photos are just one second of your life. They're your pauses, and I could live in your pauses. I want to travel as much as you do. I want people to look at my Insta and envy my life, which can't be dull. I want to know you. I want to know how you can get me to care about you, and if I can do it to you or someone else. I want what you have, and I want to have it with you. It makes me miserable to look, but so far, I've been unable to stop. Our next story of the evening is The Deconstruction by Blair Hurley. We chose The Deconstruction because of the way Blair brings the relationship at the heart of the story to life, not just by what's said, but by what's unsaid as well, the silences that make up so much of our lives. Ultimately, though, it's a story about the ties that bind us both together and to others. Blair Hurley has an AB in English and Creative Writing from Princeton University and an MFA from NYU's Program in Fiction. Short stories have been published or are forthcoming in the Georgia Review, West Branch, Ninth Letter, Hayden's Ferry Review, and elsewhere. Blair's West Branch story won a 2018 Pushcart Prize 
and she is the recipient of fellowships from the Kimmel Harding Nelson Foundation, the Ragdale Foundation, and the Vermont Studio Center. Her debut novel, The Devoted, was published by W.W. Norton in August 2018. And Blair's story will be read by Rudy Utter. Rudy Utter is an actor, director, and instructor specializing in Shakespeare performance. Originally from Minnesota, he has worked in New York with the likes of Fault Line Theater, Match Lit, Hang a Tale, and the Antimatter Collective. He also frequently participates in Amias's monthly New Works project shots at the Crane Theater downstairs. Uh, he is a former company member of the Great River Shakespeare Festival, as well as the Shakespeare Festival of St. Louis. He holds an MFA in acting from Brown University slash Trinity Rep. And so I give you The Deconstruction by Blair Hurley. The Deconstruction by Blair Hurley. They returned from the dinner as if it were any other evening with people they loved to detest. Carrie immediately stepped out of her heels, and Jack thumbed through the mail in the hall table he hadn't had time to look at before they'd hurried out for dinner. Now it was late, and he was tired. He felt 40. He'd kept checking in, checking in this month before his actual birthday. Feeling 40 yet? Not yet. <laughs> Carrie stretched one log leg out after another, and he caught the line of her body in her sleek navy dress out of the corner of his eye. Appreciated it. Well, that was nice, she said. We made it through anyway, Jack said. She laughed, disappearing ahead of him into the kitchen, going for the fridge. They'd had three courses of shrimp and scallops at the new Mediterranean place, but she was always hungry. She joked that she'd been malnourished as a child, and like a stray cat, she'd never learned to self-regulate. Did you see what she was wearing? Carrie asked, coming up with a tub of hummus. He got the carrots. I was too fixed on what he was wearing. Were those polka dots? Well, she had polka dots too. They matched. They ate carrots and hummus, leaning over the counter, gazing out onto the low jumble of buildings, the outer ring of Somerville. Boston's only two towers, the Hancock and the Prue, jutting like upside-down fangs in their window. Don't you remember? She said she liked to sew ties for him out of her old dress fabric. And when she started talking about her new writing project, don't start, he was laughing. And she grinned up at him, elbows on the counter, delighted with her own wickedness. A series of touching aphorisms on faith and how it grows in the human heart, she said, quoting. She's so cozy. Cozy's the word for her. God, I almost lost it. But you can't. They'd be crushed. You'd lose your only friends from before you met me. I know. She pursed her rose-pink lips, made a comical effort to contain herself. I thought you were going to lose it when she started telling you why we shouldn't get flu shots. Oh, my God. He clasped his temples with both hands, remembering. Were they really arguing that all vaccines are toxic? Really? How are these people real? I'd heard about them, but I didn't think they actually existed. Oh, they're real. He caught her by the waist. How is he your friend again? How are they still your friends? She laughed. We went to Bible camp together. It's a loyalty thing. When they first met at a party in grad school, she called herself a survivor of religion. She'd been raised in a strict evangelical family. Girls shouldn't wear pants strict. Harry Potter is Satanism strict. Summers at Jesus camp, sweating and rolling on benches, speaking in tongues. When you felt the Holy Spirit come upon you, you were supposed to grab a buddy, someone who could witness your being touched by the divine and make sure you didn't bite off your tongue. And Ben had been hers. In college, she broke away from the church and her family. 
Now she, was, now she received a strained phone call twice a year, on Christmas and Easter, not her birthday. She told him all this shortly upon their meeting because he called himself a recovering Catholic. So too with him the weight of guilt and love mixed in every interaction with his parents. It was only recently, after his last visit home, that he had realized he'd drifted too far away to return. While he was morose in his discovery, she was fiercely exultant in her new liberation. Now she was wearing a short skirt and making new friends, the kind she would never have made a scant year ago. She was drinking too much, and the first night he drove her home. In the car they commiserated over shame and devotion and the fear of hell. Now that they were outside that small dark house of thought, they could laugh at it. She leaned her head on his shoulder and asked him to kiss her and to make it good. He almost crashed the car, satisfying her. She nodded in approval, and he refound the middle, the yellow middle line in the road, and she wrote her number on the inside of his wrist. On the way home, after dropping her off, he pressed his lips to the place where she had written the damp, smudgy numbers, feeling the beat of his own pulse under her skin. When he started in on the state of our souls, I thought it was going to start laughing, he said, coming into the kitchen in his sweatpants. Can you believe that? He was talking to an empty room. She was gone somewhere. He looked around, puzzled for a moment, until she emerged from the den, holding a glass of wine. Checking my email, she said. He repeated what he'd said, and her mouth twitched. That was the way she laughed sometimes. It was a bit much. During the dinner, he'd watched her face, loving the way he could read her expressions. He could tell she was bursting to say something, to complain, maybe, about what they were putting up with, but she kept her mouth pressed to a thin, smiling line, a friendly barrier. Ben had made a little diagram of forks and knives on the table, outlining the compound for the new chapel. He would be the lead pastor. I want to show people the message still has relevance. So many people have a, felt a sickness in society, like, like there's something missing in their lives, he said, his polka-dotted tie dunking in the soup. But we know what's missing. He hadn't finished. He'd let them fill in the blank. God, I'm guessing, Jack said. That's exactly it, Ben said. It was impressive, really, how earnest he was. Most people talking in this way would laugh or mock themselves, but Ben never did. Jack had flitted his eyes to Carrie, waiting for her to speak. Will you have a buddy system for the Holy Rollers the way we had? She asked. Now he had pulled her close to him, pressing his lips to her neck, but she pulled away. I'm exhausted, aren't you? I suppose. Even that response made him happy somehow. It was good to be tired after a long night out together, to lie in bed on top of each other with their bodies heavy as sacks of grain. Next weekend, let's not plan anything. Let's just go walking around town, just you and me. Isn't that a plan? She wriggled free from his grasp and went into the kitchen. He could hear her pulling out the big wooden cutting block and then the hard chock-chock of her cutting something. He went to the doorway and leaned in, watching while she pulled slices of cheese off a block, eating them as fast as she could cut them. Can't you imagine them at home together, he said. I've never seen them touch. I can just see them sitting on their little doily couch watching Billy Graham. She kept her head down, chopping a pepper to go with her cheese, the knife tap-tapping. He didn't know why he kept talking. Something about her quiet made him nervous. Can you imagine them fucking? They probably think it's sinful if you're enjoying it. She was always the one who started it. They'd go to a party, and when a guest irritated her, her eyes would flash at him from across the room. New fodder. 
His favorite part of the evening was driving home afterward, or once they were living together, coming into the foyer sharing whatever obnoxious, egregious social errors had been made. They were not snobs, they told each other. They were the anti-snobs. They were crusaders for common sense. Enough of this easy tolerance of frat boy humor, of pseudoscience, of political dogma accepted as doctrine. Instead, shake out the rug, beat the dirt out of it. They played all that way through their courtship, finding movies or books, or especially people, they found insufferable. Right-wing politicians, old white men of the cloth, but also vegans, couples with new babies, people who checked their horoscopes, juice cleansers and paleos and vaccine deniers. Over time, the list of insufferable people grew. Marathoners, people who called other people bro, roller skating couples, foodies, people who canceled plans because of sports events on television. Sometimes Jack lost track of all the people they had ragged on. But he looked forward to the ritual of the return to their apartment, the removal of shoes, and then what he called the deconstruction, both of them laughing, delighted by their own cruelty. She stopped chopping, letting the knife hover over the board. I know exactly what they're like together. They're like my parents. Once a week, like clockwork, they gave us money for ice cream to go to the movies. When we all got back, my father would be mowing the lawn or raking the leaves or shoveling snow, depending on the season. My mother would be up in bed in her ridiculous floor-length nightgown, crying. He was quiet. This was something he hadn't heard before. They had always laughed at the things her parents said and did, but this seemed too sad. Yeesh, he said. Tell me about it, she said, and kept chopping. He wandered out of the kitchen, looking at the oil painting she had started, an easel on a pile of canvas in the corner. It looked like a tangle of thorny branches emerging from a cold, wintry plot of soil. Or were they more like flames twisting and flickering? He never knew what her paintings were of. She said she painted from memory and wouldn't explain further. He'd offered to sit for her, Something pleased him about the idea of appearing in her art, but she said she never did portraiture. He went back to the kitchen, planning to say something conciliatory. There was such a thing as crossing a line, after all, and maybe he'd crossed it. He knew these things cut closer for her. The first Christmas as a married couple, he'd brought her home to his family and attended a midnight mass. In the morning, she was not in their cramped little guest bedroom bed. He searched for her everywhere, tiptoeing to keep from waking the sleeping house. She was, in fact, not anywhere in the house. She was gone. She appeared for breakfast, sunny and helpful with the eggs. She did not talk about how hard the mass had been to attend. But when you were married, you knew these things. She was gone again. The board was there, with its soldierly line of sliced peppers. The sink was dripping. He pressed hard on the tap, feeling the hairs rise on his neck. It was like she'd become a ghost. What was so wrong about picking at others in secret, really? It was private. It never got beyond the door of this apartment, that high balcony where they might look out at the city and lean on the railing and howl at all the poor, sad bastards so willing to believe in something, anything. He loved seeing the flush in Carrie's cheeks as she unveiled her latest witticism. Only the old Catholic in him felt a lump of guilt, a slight tinge of dirtiness, when they imagined what other people looked like naked or what their darkest, most tawdry secrets were when they lay in bed after their quick, vicious lovemaking. She was his wild, cruel girl. It was exciting to be around her, in collusion with her bright, scornful view of the world. 
On the way to dinner, Jack and Carrie had passed a billboard saying, Lust will drag you down to hell, in giant, unadorned capital letters. Jack had mentioned it over the table as evidence of the religious fundamentalism that existed, that was thriving, in fact, right outside the city limits. Can you believe it? He asked. I mean, come on, getting proselytized on a state highway? Jesus Christ. I think he's central to the issue, actually, Carrie had said, and they both laughed. Ben lowered his head shyly, and Betsy's mouth compressed into a thin line. I'm sure it meant well, she said. There's a real concern out there about the morality in this country. I'm not saying everyone has to believe it, Ben said. Not in a literal sense, but doesn't it make us all think a little harder about the choices we're making? Maybe we're not going to hell, but maybe there's a hell of our own making. Carrie had a small, strangled look then. It was small, but he'd heard it and wanted to grab her hand under the table. Ben cleared his throat. I worry sometimes about the state of our souls, he said. There's a lot of deceiving that we do. There are too many ways we're deceiving ourselves. Wasn't it just so condescending, Jack thought. And to safely wrap the condemnation into a we, just us godless heathens. He looked over at Carrie, and there was a look on her face, something like fear, a fine trembling in her lips that only someone very close, only a husband, could see. It went across her face like a small troubled wave, and then it was gone. We all do, honey, said Betsy, but there's always time to put ourselves right. And then the dessert arrived. He went into the den, saying, I hope you don't take Ben too seriously. But she wasn't there. He turned in a circle, his bewilderment growing. It was like she'd learned a new trick, this disappearing act. He came into the front room, and there she was, on the balcony, a slim shadow pressed to the railing, her face turned to the city light. He knocked on the glass door. She looked so lonely there that he wanted to grab her in his arms, but there was something inviolable about her privacy. It had always been this way. When she was alone, he was afraid to touch her, lest he create a panic, lest she hurt herself in her attempts to get away. She could be like a wounded deer. But she was his wife. He touched her shoulder, and she didn't turn. You're thinking about what Ben said, he ventured. That made her turn. What? That snide little comment about how he worries about our souls. <laughs> what an ass. He tried to find her hand. She had them tucked under her arms. It was cool and windy on their high perch. He knew she was cold and would like his big, warm body surrounding hers, but for some reason he couldn't move to wrap himself around her. He wasn't worried about your soul, she said firmly. You don't have a soul. He was worried about mine. He drew back. He'd never heard her say that, so flat and blank and calm. She was looking out at the city and seemed hardly concerned by his presence at all. What's that supposed to mean, he asked. You don't believe in that sort of thing. And you do? I used to. Didn't I? Not in the same way. And that will never leave me. I'll always have a soul. I can poison it. I can starve it. I can pretend it's not there, but it will never leave me. She delivered this with a sad triumph. He left the balcony, returned to the tight little galley kitchen, and poured himself a full brimming glass of gin. She was right, he supposed, but she'd never said it this way. It sounded like she was realizing it herself. He drank the gin slowly but steadily, looking around at the pictures on wall shelves, the bowl with its browning bananas. The air smelled of ripeness, fleshy and too sweet. 
First time he came home from college, his large family all came to the train station and greeted him exuberantly, full of questions and gossip and indignities. That morning was Sunday, and everybody packed up off to Mass, but he had to break away from the family for confession before he could take communion. Haven't you been confessing at college? his mother asked. And then it was embarrassing, because he had to admit he hadn't been going. He'd gone once at the very beginning of the semester, walking over a mile to Our Lady of Sorrows, but the priests there spoke Portuguese better than English and didn't understand when he confessed to onanism or avarice, so he had not returned. His mother was disappointed, but she let him go and confess now to the priest who had heard all his sins since he was a small boy, and then he would take communion. But the wafer tasted like ash in his mouth. When he went back to college, he did not go back to mass, and he did not miss it either. He gave a little relieved shrug and shivered it off, like he had finally been caught in a long-held lie, and now it was gone. Carrie had said once, I'll never speak to my family with the same language again. He went into the den, weaving just a little now. The latest painting was up on its easel, staring at him. There were eyes in the trees looking out that he had never noticed before, lovely and blue. On the, deck, on the desk, her phone glowed with a new message, at this hour? Then he knew who it would be from. It would be from Ben. He could pick up the phone right now and confirm it. She was such a private person, and he respected her privacy absolutely. She knew it. She didn't password protect anything. And what would Ben be saying to her? He was worried about the state of their souls. All he had to do was go over there and read it. He thought, you've got it all wrong, Ben. I don't have a soul. All you have to do is prevent pain. He came out of the den in time to see her climbing the balcony railing. He remembered hearing the glass he was holding smash somewhere behind him as he ran down the hall. And then his arms were around her middle, and he was holding her. Nothing else was preventing her fall. Nothing but his arms around her. They didn't say anything. They were silent in the rushing air around them. The windy elevation, a presence helping to hold them up. Thank you very much, Rudy. Okay, we're gonna take a, a quick 10 sort of minute break or so. Um, grab a drink at the bar and we will be back uh, for the second half, two more stories, as well as our exciting literary trivia quiz where you could win uh, books as prizes. So don't go away. See you in a bit. Okay guys, we're gonna get started with our exciting literary trivia quiz. So if I could have your attention. You can win one of these four excellent books. We have Freedom, a novel by Jonathan Branson. We have Black Klansman, a memoir by Ron Stolworth. We have The Dogs of Detroit by Brad Felver. And Lights All Night Long by Lydia Fitzpatrick. So those are the books you stand to win. Uh, the way this is going to work is I'm going to read out some uh, a trivia question um, themed around freedom and restraint. I think they're pretty much all about restraint. Um, uh, they're pretty much all about prisons, actually. Um, and um, what we're going to do is you're going to, if you know the answer, do not shout it out. Just put your hand up. 
And I'm going to do my best to kind of decide who kind of put their hand up first. Remember, don't shout out the answer because then it gets very confusing. Uh, and I have like these sort of dilemmas about like, oh, who do I give it to? The answer is not Alcatraz for any of these <laughs> questions. So I'll, I'll tell you that right off the bat. Okay, right. Um, I'm going to get progressively easier with the questions. So if I get to the 10th question, you're all doing very badly because that's the easiest one. So uh, I'm going to go sort of harder, but they're not that hard, so whatever. Okay, so starting difficult, uh, or in this case, starting very, very nerdy. According to J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter books, uh, Azkaban is a prison where wizards who violate the laws of the British wizarding world are sent. Only one other such prison is mentioned in the books. What is it called? Does anyone know the only other name of a prison, a magical prison from the wizarding world that is not Azkaban? Anyone want to take a guess? Nope. The answer is Nurmengard. Nurmengard, apparently, is the answer. Of course. There we go. Okay, next question. Uh, someone should get this, I reckon. Uh, the Shawshank Redemption was adapted from a short story by Stephen King. What is the name of the short story? Does anyone want to take a guess? Yes. Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Correct. The answer is Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption is the name of the original short story on which the film is based. Uh, would you like uh, Freedom, Black Klansman, The Dogs of Detroit, or Lights All Night Long? Uh, Black Klansman. Black Klansman, it is. An excellent movie, a fine memoir. Okay, next question. Do, 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 do. Uh, this is going to be, someone's immediately going to get this. Uh, the Ballad of Reading Jail was written by a former prisoner under the pseudonym of C33, which stood for Block C, landing 3, cell 3, and was the prisoner's only name whilst in Reading Jail. Who was C33? Anyone? C-33 was the pseudonym of which <coughs> prisoner? No, I'm going to tell you. Oscar Wilde. Oh. Oscar Wilde uh, was sentenced for two years hard labor in, 19, in 1895 for what was called gross indecency. Uh, and uh, he went through a number of prisons, one of which was Reading Jail, and uh, wrote the ballad of Reading Jail as well. Okay, next. Who wrote One Day in the Life of Ian Denisevich? A life, a single day, uh, yes, in the Soviet gulag. Is it Ivan Elek? It is not Ivan Elek, no. Yes. Oh, is it Ian Tolstoy? It is not Tolstoy, yes. It is Alexander Solzhenitsyn, correct. We go there in the end. Would you like freedom? Dogs of Detroit or all night? Oh, lights all night? Light long? Dogs of Detroit. Dogs of Detroit, it is. Congratulations. Okay. 
What do the following books... Someone's going to guess this immediately. Um, what do the following books all have in common? Dante's The Divine Comedy, John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, The Marquis de Sade's 120 Days of Sodom, and Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. What do all those books have in common? Were they all banned in Boston? They were not... Well, I think it's a good answer, and it's not the answer I'm looking for. Yes. They were all written in prison. Congratulations. Final book that is up, Jonathan Franzen's Freedom. Um, so, uh, let's see, where are we going now? Uh, let's go with which, which fictional institution has been home to such characters in literature as the Joker, the Riddler, Batman, I think it was Tim down here. Arkham Asylum. It is indeed Arkham Asylum. Congratulations. Very good. I think, I think we got down to the sixth question there, so there were four easier ones to go. So you can all give yourselves a pat on the back for not being uh, for me, very literary, uh, well-informed. Okay, we're going to get started with our first story of the second half, which is New Year's Eve. 1990 by Tara Lindis. Round of applause for Tara. Um, I'm a massive fan, as anyone who's been to Larry's League before will know, of Judy Bloom. And uh, it's absolutely true. Uh, and I can think of no higher compliment than to say Tara's story uh, brought her books to mind. Um, like many of Judy Bloom's characters, and like the night on which this story takes place, the character in this story is in transition held between one place and the next. Tara Lindis has had work published or is forthcoming in Streetlight Magazine, Flash Fiction Magazine, and Tributaries Journal. Originally from Portland, Oregon, she has an MA in Literature from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and now lives in Brooklyn, New York with her husband and two children. And Tara's story will be read by Ginny Bartolone. Ginny is thrilled to be back with Liars League for the third time. She's been performing since she was a kid and studied acting at Drew University and the London Dramatic Academy. She is also a non-fiction writer and currently finishing a book about her two long-distance hikes across Spain. You can follow her writing on her blog, maybe there will be cupcakes.com, uh, which I love as a title. Um, I am often thinking that as a, a hopeful possibility. Maybe there will be cupcakes. Anyway, without further ado, I give you New Year's Eve, 1990, by Tara Lindis. New Year's Eve, 1990, by Tara Lindis. My mother took me to that New Year's Eve party at the Noltes because my 18th birthday had been the day before, and my own friends were still away for the holidays. She said I could pretend this party was all for me, that it could be my secret. I liked secrets, didn't I? My mother and I often played these types of games since my father had left. They were private games for the two of us, where no one else would bother with the rules, which changed often. Playing and pretending were often more the point of these games, and mostly no one won. 
When we arrived, my mother's friends absorbed her into their huddle. A glass of champagne materialized in her hand. She motioned with her chin to a table with a punch bowl and assorted bottles of wines on the far side of the room. Mrs. Nolte floated through the room in a black T-length gown, boat neckline, fitted bodice, tulle skirt, black heels, a choker of pearls at her neck. She'd been a ballet dancer in Houston before she was married, and I could never look at her without simultaneously envisioning her as a swan. Her touch on my elbow was slight, even her fingers were graceful. It's good to see you, she said to me, and then she moved on to the next guest. Above the punch bowl was a mirror, and I did a double take to recognize myself. My mother had dabbed her coral Maybelline lipstick across my lips in a series of dots that tasted like chalk. She skipped the blush because my cheeks flushed pink easily, as if I were always on the brink of embarrassment or humiliation, but she painted on liquid eyeliner above and below my eyes and followed it with a smoky, glittery eyeshadow and jet black mascara. I borrowed her cashmere shawl and a rhinestone choker, both inherited from her own mother, who, and wore them over a simple sheath dress I had found in a thrift store for the spring formal. In the bathroom mirror at home, the shawl and the choker had felt elegant, with my hair pulled up in a twist and a few tendrils curled around my face. But now I saw that I was less elegant and more an awkward high school senior with too much makeup on, pretending to be a woman she wasn't sure she wanted to be. The punch, red and sickly sweet, fizzed and sparked on my tongue and made me want to sneeze. Across the room, a friend of my mother's introduced her to a man. I could tell my mother liked him, or at least enjoyed the prospect of flirting. She tossed her honey blonde curls, freshly colored that afternoon. Her friends often told her that she and I looked exactly alike. It was meant as a compliment, and a compliment to her skin. It, it was meant as a way to prevent one of her moods. But it pained me when I had to fake a smile and my agreement, my pleasure at her strong genes. It was the first party I navigated alone with my own friends or a parent by my side. I sipped my punch, winced, met the glance of a guy my own age who laughed. He grabbed an extra glass of champagne off a tray and made his way over to me. This is a better option, he said. That punch is lethal. He took the punch glass from my hand and replaced it with a champagne glass. I recognized him from the, from, uh, the previous year at school. I felt embarrassed to be so overly dressed and made up, but he didn't say anything, nor did his face register anything askew. Uh, you're Jeremy from across the street, David Nolte's friend, I said. Jeremy was tall, thin, with curly brown hair and glasses and overly pronounced knuckles on his hands. Uh, generally nice and funny, active in the theater. I had seen him in the hallway, knew his friends of his, and even if he and I didn't hang out. Uh, he was the type who had a lot of friends who were girls, but no girlfriends. I'm at Dartmouth now, he said. I'm home for the holidays as if I couldn't have figured that out. A large television recapped the past year via the local news. Someone had muted the sound so it didn't interfere with Harry Connick Jr. on the CD player. Behind the presidential podium, George Bush announced Operation Desert Shield, followed by headlines about the war on drugs, the AIDS epidemic. We don't need the sound on for George, my mother yelled from the back. We can all read his lips. Her friends burst out laughing. I could tell she had burned through her first two glasses of champagne. Her face glowed with laughter, her eyes shined. 
The man she was talking to leaned on one shoulder against the wall in the style of Cary Grant. With her painted nails, her red lipstick, and draped sleeves, my mother slipped into her charade where her witty jokes flattered. Acquaintances were always her best friends. I swallowed and my own spit got caught in my throat. I really don't feel like watching the countdown, I said. It's a while yet, Jeremy said. We held hands as he led me to the dessert table where we overfilled small plates with thin slices of cake, cream puffs, chocolate truffles, chocolate-covered strawberries. We snuck glasses of champagne and small green bottles of Perrier. We balanced everything between fingers and forearms and made ourselves a picnic on the stairs going up to the balcony, our own private perch where we could watch everyone. Guffaws of laughter rose from the room. The low rumble of several conversations at once of everyone talking over one another. Jeremy imitated the adult conversations in different voices, mocking their serious concerns of pointless affairs or disappointing children who differed from them, jobs they hated because they had failed at what they loved. He impersonated our high school guidance counselor who often advocated for having a plan B for colleges or fields of study. Jeremy went on about how now everyone lived plan B lives. I laughed until my stomach muscles hurt, even though I knew we were laughing at our own fears, at the adults we did not want to become. We were still years away from our own failures. Our champagne now warm, we took it outside to the back porch to have while we smoked. The cigarette tasted better and sweeter than all the dessert. Mixed with the cold, the smoke burned my lungs, but I loved the feeling. I couldn't see or hear my mother from the porch. My skin pricked with goosebumps. I could feel my body contract with the chill as if the night air defined the edges of my own body more clearly. There were still branches coated in ice, some of them fallen. Down below, they would have seemed like threats or potential danger, but from a porch, they looked like magic, painted by fairies. The downed branches pointed a path forward that I envisioned myself walking alone, not tied to my mother, not tied to anyone. In the clear night, for a millisecond, I felt like it was my own private party after all. I shivered with a fleeting joy, and then I had to pee. <laughs> Inside, I went down the upstairs hallway, thinking the bathroom would be obvious, but the house was large, and I had to open several doors in the hall. In an extra room, sat the man in an armchair. His head leaned back and his eyes closed. My mother was kneeling in front of him, her honey blonde head and hot roller curls bobbing in his lap. I pulled the door shut while holding the knob so the latch didn't sound. I walked back down the hallway, my heels sinking in the plush carpet. Finally, I located the Noltz's master bedroom, an enormous master bathroom, and into the toilet, I vomited up the cream puffs, the truffles, the chocolate-covered strawberries, the champagne, and the red fizz punch. I washed my face. I found a bottle of Clinique makeup remover and cotton balls and wiped off the liquid eyeliner. I found an unopened toothbrush in a drawer and brushed my teeth. I reapplied my makeup using Mrs. Noltz's stash in the medicine cabinet. While well, my mother favored Maybelline, Mrs. Nolte used, used, used Chanel. The lipstick went on like silk. Her lotion smelled divine. The eyeshadow had no glimmer like my mother's. Her mascara didn't clump. 
It went on straight and even. I looked like myself, not like someone pretending. I found Jeremy on the stairs where we had previously been perched. I sat down next to him and I removed my heels. By now I had pinched toes and blistered feet. At midnight, the television replayed the ball drop from New York City three hours earlier. Everyone hollered, horns blew, champagne corks popped, cars outside honked, and in the distance, fireworks crackled. Plenty of people kissed, but Jeremy and I stared straight ahead. I knew by then he was gay. It was a relief not to act otherwise. As guests began to leave, I located my mother alone in a guest room. Sitting on the bed, her eyeliner smeared under her eyes. Her lips were pale, her lipstick long gone. She wasn't as drunk as I thought she was. In fact, she seemed completely sober, which made it worse. I had wanted to harbor the slight fantasy that she hadn't known what a fool or how shallow she was, but she had. She had been playing her own game, and she hadn't been pretending. She had known all along. Thank you very much, Ginny. Uh, our final story of the evening is Clover House by Catherine Jameson. And we have Catherine with us here in the audience. Round of applause for Catherine. In Clover House, Catherine expertly paints a picture of a character who's also in transition, but here reminding us that freedom isn't always chosen. Sometimes it happens to us, and when it does, it can be as intimidating as restraint. Catherine Jameson is a graduate of the Iowa Nonfiction Writers Program, where she was an Iowa Arts Fellow. Her essays and articles have been published in the New York Times, Narrative, Meridian, Elementium, Brevity, and The Best Women's Travel Writing 2011 and 2013. Based in the woods of Western Massachusetts, Catherine leads a dual life as a reclusive writer and road manager of an internationally touring musician, musician her husband. Uh, you can read more of her writing at katherinejameson.com. And Catherine's story will be read by Kathy Baruch. Kathy Baruch is no stranger to the east side of New York, which is where she, her NYC career began. Memorable moments have been working with John Strasberg, performing with Austin Pendleton, studying at the Circle in the Square, and being friended and inspired by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Kathy performs regularly as comedian and actress, and you can see her in Ten Penny Comedy Show at the Coney Island Baby NYC Bar uh, on Sunday, June 9th from 3 to 5 p.m. So without further ado, our final story of the evening, Clover House by Katherine Jameson. Dot drifted from room to room, listening to her footfalls echo against the Mexican tile, soften over the wooden decks, and disappear altogether on the plush shag rugs. Rosita had just been in for the weekly cleaning and everything was immaculate. Sunlight streamed in through the bay windows, illuminating the decor of solid Easter egg colors. Her decorator had pushed her to go rainbow with the place to match the beach setting and the dramatic sunsets. Together they had spent months searching for just the right rugs and couches, everything down to the fuchsia fly swatter. 
a year later. The colors struck her as rather gaudy, but of course it was much too late. The beach house was cavernous. It could easily hold 16, plus extra space for cribs and arrow beds, and children loved to sleep nestled in the giant bean bags in the TV room. Designed to accommodate a squadron of family and friends, a jumbling, jostling togetherness in the bright colors. From the moment she and Clark had found the lot, the house had taken shape around the buoyancy of this imagined crowd. And of course, Clark was part of it. Where was there with her always? Where else could he be? Tonight she would have a glass of wine. No, she wouldn't. Uh, yeah, she would. <laughs> Why not? The mild tussling continued, tiresome. She did not have problems with alcohol, but she knew the drink would be the event of the evening. This drink was all she had to do in the world, and perhaps a little dinner afterward, though she was not hungry. Walking into the basement, she saw the orange and yellow checkered pull-out couch. After some friends with teenage boys had visited last year, she found a copy of Penthouse between the cushions. The women's bodies were smooth and spectral, like something, like something of the moon. Moon women with their promising creases and folds, ever ready lust. In the camera's eye, they looked bold and unashamed, though she wondered. Would Clark have liked these women? They never spoken of, much less looked at these kinds of images together. So much went unspoken between them as she went about busily decorating and furnishing their life that would soon be only her life. The affair had blindsided her. And now, more than a year after signing all the papers and divvying up their 37 years of memory-charged things, she still waited to hear him troping up the steps to their house at 6.30 every evening. Still woke in the night, surprised to find his side of the bed vacant, the sheets pulled tight. When had he become so unhappy? Joan was the name of his new happiness. Dot had always known of her vaguely, an old co-worker of Clark's at some long ago law office. And because she was named, because she was an acquaintance, Dot had never suspected her as a threat. When Clark and Joan had first moved in together, not long after the separation was final, Dot had dropped some documents off when they were out. She was supposed to leave them in the foyer, but instead she walked the rooms and saw their clothes hanging together, the bed hastily made up with sheets she herself had bought, dishes in the sink from a soft-boiled egg breakfast, Clark's favorite. Photos were already framed and sitting on the mantelpiece. Tall Clark, taller Joan. They smiled. Joan's gray tabby followed her from room to room, watching. Dot cataloged their traces, piecing together the story of their morning and their days to come. 
At 63, she had no plan for this. She wasn't jaunty or independent, and she'd never lived alone. Her first response had been resentment that he had broken their arrangement. People marry to get old together, don't they? She had money, so she would be fine as far as that was concerned. But what to do with her 20, 30 some odd years left? Her life spread before her like an abandoned picnic basket on a cold fall day. Now, if Clark had died a few years before, after the heart attack, this impulse for infidelity would have died with him. <laughs> she would have been able to mourn purely and then ensconce herself in widow status with the honor of a marriage completed by death. <laughs> As it was, friends were already encouraging her to get out there again. She had to fly in the face of Clark's cheating and rest back her confidence, or some other nonsense. But it was Joan, not Clark, who put the face on her misery. The visage of the short-haired, tennis-fit woman in the frame was the one that floated before her when she could not sleep. As she walked upstairs, she thought she would have that drink after all. Why not? Every action had become a way to count time. Glass of wine, small sips, 30 minutes. Washing her own dishes, three minutes. A shower, maybe 10, 15 if she could relax. Was she counting up to something or down? As she poured the glass, she decided she couldn't stand being in the house in a second longer. Walking and drinking on the beach would soothe her. And when she returned, night would have muted the colors and she would be drowsy. Clark had insisted on building the beach house as far from the others as the island would allow. At this time of day, during the off season, she could walk for miles and see no one. She had let him sight the house, not realizing this would mean ongoing battles with the zoning board and citizens' environmental groups. Clark wanted to encroach on the piping plover's nesting grounds, and he had hired a lawyer to defy the ordinances. The birds lost the case and were forced further up the shoreline. Dot now had the irrational feeling that the birds who winged by the sweeping bay windows knew she had taken their land, and the spectacular view she enjoyed came at the price of plover eggs and plover babies. Now this evening, instead of walking by the ocean, which was her custom, Dot went into the dunes. The waves of the sand rolled out before her, and she moved slowly to avoid jostling the wine. Every few steps she paused to take a sip, but the wind had picked up now and the grains flew into her hair and ears and settled into the glass. She poured the liquid out and the burgundy flared back at her as it sunk into the white sand. Covering it with her foot, she kept walking. The monotony of the dunes lulled her and she moved through the fading light as a boat navigates fog. Dot heard a cat noise, somewhere between a meow and a purr, and turned toward the sound. 
In a low light, she could make out a young girl's torso rising up against the sunset, her eyes closed, her nipples as pink and bright as the rays shooting from the dying sun. A boy was below her on the blanket, but she could only see his chin tipped up, his body straining against the girl's. The two rose and fell as if she were the siren on the prow of a boat riding a swell. Mermaids running. They were just a few feet away. Dot dropped her wine glass and it landed silently in the sand. Watching them, Dot was certain that it was she, clothed, alone, standing, who did not belong in this place. She knew she should back away slowly, but, but she could not pull her eyes from the girl's dirty blonde hair whipping in the wind, her narrow, muscled waist locked to the boy's groin, the tiny smile nestled on her full lips. The girl arched again and gripped the boy's shoulders as he bucked against her. Dot let out an involuntary sob, and the girl's eyes flicked up and opened. Dot closed her eyes and stood frozen, mortified. She hadn't even realized that she was crying. The sound had come straight from the sea, strangled, a strangled squawk of misery she didn't know she was capable of making. When she opened her eyes, the girl stood in front of her. She was still naked, and the insides of her thighs glistened with semen. A tiny gold stud sparkled on her nostril, and the tattoo of a vine wound over her hip bone, encircling her navel. She couldn't have been more than 19. Are you lost? <laughs> she asked. I'm fine. I'm fine, Dot said, wiping at her nose and dusting the sand from her hands. I'm, I'm sorry, I never walk this way, she said, looking down again. The girl nodded, completely unashamed. She was timeless, a flower child reincarnate or a new age acolyte. It was all the same. The world of tattoos, drugs, and free love, which Dot had never caught on to when she was the, the girl's age, was much less now that she was old. Uh, can we help you get home? She asked. The boy behind them had rolled his body flat on the sand and he gazed out at the darkening ocean. No, really, I'll be fine. I don't live far, Dot said. She started to move toward the dune and, and faltered on the sand as she turned. The girl stepped forward to steady her and Dot heard a splintering noise and a shriek of pain. The girl fell backward crying, the bright red spurt a shock of color on the sand. In a second, the boy was beside them, easing the girl back against his chest and stretching her leg out to examine it. Shards of glass jutted from the arch of her foot. My wine glass, I dropped it when I saw you. I'm, I'm so sorry, said Dot. The girl's face was wet and rigid with pain. Her nakedness made her wound seem primal. Uh, we have our bikes said the boy. <laughs> he looked younger and less confident than the girl, and she realized that he was using her body to shield his own nudity. We'll go to my house, Dot said. I can drive you to the hospital, 
Do you live on the island? Are your families visiting? She said. Uh, no, we work at the farm on McAdam Road. Uh, our supervisor will pick us up, the boy said. Uh, how far is your house? Dot pointed to her mansion, barely visible above the dunes, about half a mile away. The boy laid the girl back down and ran to get their clothes. She could hear the slide of his legs into the jeans and the crack of the stretched cotton as he pulled on his shirt. Back at her side, he and Dot lifted the girl gingerly and slid a flowered shift over her head, threading her arms through the holes. Her flowered broad panties poked from the boy's back pocket. They strung the girl between them and raised her up, moaning. Dot had to work to get her balance in the sand. The girl was heavier than she imagined. Her moist arm wrapped around Dot's neck and she could feel the girl's fingertips pulling the flesh off her shoulder and pressing into her bone. Dot grasped the boy's calloused hand underneath the girl to create a swing. The three moved as one body, chastened by the girl's pain, pausing when she couldn't stand the jousting anymore. Dot smelled the pungency of their sex, which seemed to float on the sea air. Breathing heavily in the summer evening, they used the lights of the house to guide them back. Dot led them in through the basement and put the girl, whose name she had learned was Sari, on the yellow and orange couch. The boy, Thomas, went upstairs to call the farm. Dot ran for towels and could only find bright pink ones with purple polka dots. She propped up Sari's leg, trying not to stare at the deep gashes on her foot. Dot brought Tylenol with some mango juice. The girl's face looked worn, but she was able to give her a vague smile. Thanks, she said, grimacing as she settled into the couch. I I'm so sorry about this, Dot said. If you hadn't stepped out to help me, Sari shook her head before she could finish. Things happen for a reason, right? She said, maybe we needed to meet you to see the Plover House firsthand. She said, glancing around. The what house? The Plover House. Isn't that what uh, this place is called? They told us the name of it on the farm. Dot flushed. The farmers must despise her and probably the townspeople too. The legacy of Clark's bullheaded battles was now hers to live down. Blood was trickling from the girl's foot again, leaving red dots next to the purple ones. Dot stood up and walked to the window. What's your job on the farm? Growing flowers, Sari said, shifting and wincing. We make bouquets and sell them at the Wednesday market. Oh, have you ever been? Dot recalled a cluster of wooden tables around the gazebo in the town common. Dusty children running about, twangy banjo and fiddle in the background. The wafting scent of patchouli and the general bohemian revelry had kept her at bay. I haven't. Oh, you have to come, said Sari. I'm there through Columbus Day and then I leave for the winter. Um, I'm off the island for the season next Tuesday, she lied. Oh, too bad. Uh, next summer then, the girl said. 
This is youth, thought Dot, the optimism of reunions, the confidence that there will always be a next time, a second chance. Why ever say goodbye? Thomas came down the stairs. Uh, Russ is driving over in the truck, he said, easing Sari's damp head onto his shoulder and stroking her forehead. The girl closed her eyes. Clark and she had been about their age when they met, and she had gotten pregnant with Connor just a few years later. She knew from her sons and their ever-changing cast of girlfriends that young people did not settle down at this age any longer. This was probably a summer tryst before returning, returning to lovers in Portland or Bali. Still, she could see the tenderness was real. She felt the quietness of the house bear down as if the pair had already taken their love and their wounds and gone. I should put on the outside lights. Do you need anything else? Asked Dot. As Thomas looked up at her, she noticed the smattering of freckles across his nose and the long eyelashes any girl would envy. With their tan skin and sun-faded clothes, the two looked like muted wildflowers against the brash couch. No, we're fine. Thanks for everything, he said. Of course, of course, it was my fault. It's all good, no, no worries. I hope your foot is okay. You won't be able to work on the farm for a while, I suppose. Uh, hopefully they'll find something for me. Maybe I can start making the wreaths for fall. Oh, come by and I'll give you one. She was relieved to hear the sound of the truck on the gravel minutes later and see the bearded man lift Sari from the couch as if simply heaving a bushel of hay. Sari embraced Dot from her perch in Russ's arms and planted a dry kiss on her cheek. Come by the farm any time. You are always welcome. Dot watched them ease into the cab of the truck and arranged Sari's leg carefully across the torn upholstery. Thomas jumped into the bed of the truck and settled himself in amongst the loose carrots and potatoes. Soon she was left with just the empty juice glass and bloody towel, which she threw in the garbage. Dot spent her last few weeks on the island packing and making arrangements to close the house down for the season. She would be back with the boys and her sister's family on Thanksgiving, but in the meantime, the place would be empty. On the day she was scheduled to take the ferry home, she stopped by the post office before heading to the dock. There was a postcard from her younger son, Martin, who just spent a week with Clark and Joan and her daughter from a previous marriage. Martin, the peacemaker, he tried to keep them together, and now he was trying to make sure they all got along. In his small, exact print, he innocently written, it's strange to say, but in some ways, I, I think you'd like her mom. Back in the car, Dot curled into a fetal position on the leather seat. She was in Cambodia again with Clark, their 35th anniversary trip. They were on the waterfall tour, just them and the guide from Nam Penh. And she'd been worrying about the contractor back home and some outstanding paperwork from the beach, for the beach house. When Clark asked her something, she couldn't remember what now, she snapped at him. They walked in silence for a few miles, with the guide seemingly oblivious to their quarrel. When they came to a fallen tree, Clark sat down, and she and the guide stopped 
too. But when they wanted to keep moving a few minutes later, they couldn't get him to stand up. He wouldn't make eye contact with them, and he wouldn't budge. Doc could still see the maddening slump of his shoulders, how he kept, had just kept staring down at the jungle ground thick with vines. At the time, she felt embarrassed and outraged, but there was also a kind of rising panic in her chest. She was shrieking at him, what are you doing? What, what kind of game is this? The guide had kindly walked up the path a bit, but he had to keep an eye on them. There were vipers here, and leopards too. Then, without saying anything, Clark stood up and started walking again, acting as if nothing had happened. It is that moment that torments her, that moment that she returns to again and again. Had things already started with Joan? Was this the exact moment between sitting down on the mossy tree and standing up on the spongy ground 9,000 miles from their home that he decided to make his life with another person? Or was it simply when the seed of the possibility of someone else, someone not Dot, planted in his mind? She knew that a marriage was a series of these moments, these fights, these apologies, but this time had been different, final. Why? The car was stuffy and the seat was slick with her tears. She was searching for some tissues in the glove compartment when she heard a knock on the window. A young blonde island police officer smiled in at her as she brought the window down. Uh, we need to clear this area, ma'am. Wednesday market is starting up soon, he said. She nodded, looking down, and fumbled with the keys. For a terrible moment, she thought the car wouldn't start and she'd be stuck in the lot with all the farm, when all the farm kids showed up. But the engine turned over reliably, and she gave the police officer a tight smile and a nod as she pulled out. Hers was the only car left on the street, and she felt like she was on stage as she maneuvered it out through the orange cones, past the tanned farmers already lined up with their brilliantly colored produce. It wasn't until she spotted at the light that she saw the girl poised on a truck bed, bandaged foot wrapped in a turquoise batik patterned scarf. Sari was with some of the other young farm workers helping unload bushels of apples. The slant light of fall lit her hair golden as it whipped around in the ocean breeze. Then Thomas walked up, smiling, and tossed her a peach. She took a bite and, surprised by the rush of juice from the fruit, bent forward, laughing, dripping sweetness everywhere. Thank you very much, Kathy. Um, that's it from us for tonight. Uh, you'll find all the stories from this evening up on our website at liarzignyc.com by the end of tomorrow. And the recordings will be also on our website and in the iTunes store and on Stitcher Radio by the beginning of next week. Uh, we're going to be back here on Tuesday, the 20th of August, which is a little later because of the summer than our usual date uh, for our next show, which is short and sweet flash fiction. Uh, and we're excited to be featuring a couple of stories that uh, 
day from Ryan Chapman, uh, whose novel Riots I've Known has just come out. Ryan also wrote uh, a book of trivia called Conversation Sparks, and as a result, he's going to be guest hosting the trivia quiz uh, on that date as well. Um, the deadline for submissions, if you'd like to submit, is uh, Monday the 1st of July, and you can see our website for more details and submissions guidelines. Uh, you can also find out more about us on our website at larrysagnyc.com or on our Facebook page or Twitter feed. Uh, it just remains for me to say a massive thanks to uh, Dan and Seiji behind the bar. Let's give them a round of applause. Um, uh, but the lion's share of thanks, of course, goes to our writers, Catherine Jameson, Tara Lindis, Kate Scarpetta, Blair Hurley, and our actors, Rudy Utter, Kathy Burak, Vinny Barcelona, and Tim Farley. I'd like to thank you for flying with Liars League NYC. We know you have a choice of reading series, so we're grateful for your custom. I have been Andrew Lloyd-Jones. This has been Liars League NYC. Good night. Woo!